0: Greetings and salutations. I hope your day is both tranquil and fulfilling. I am Athanasius, and welcome back to the podcast of The Boldly Immortal. Today, I have the first part of a three-part conversation With the Audacitor, a friend of mine. We'll be talking about a number of subjects, but in this particular episode, we are talking about The Populist Delusion at the very beginning, which is a very fascinating book. There's a link to it in the description, uh, as well as just general misconceptions of how power operates and how we as Christians are to interact with it. That is the broad topic of the entire conversation, so I hope you enjoy. If you're interested in actually meeting up and talking about some of these issues, we have a muster for the Sons of Solomon. I'll be talking about that in a future episode if you're interested, Uh, but the muster is on Memorial Day in Rockford, Illinois, so reach out via the Sons of Solomon contact page. That's going to be sonsofsolomon.net to get more information or to RSVP. So without further ado, uh, my conversation with the Audacitor about Christians being active in the public square and our responsibility to understand and utilize power. Because that was kind of the initial one of the initial ideas behind the sons of Solomon was that that would be you, you pray together and then that moves into actual action. Yep. Um, and that you know, if you don't start with the prayer, then obviously nothing's going to work. But, but yeah, that, that populist illusion, I have not had time to read it right now. I'm actually, I have been working my way through Herodotus, uh, okay. which is surprisingly insightful as to how the world actually works. The, the tyrant is his is just his concept of one guy who's in charge who everybody knows is in charge and either he reigns for a long time or he doesn't and if he doesn't he gets overthrown and somebody else takes his place but then the athenian idea is well we will just have none of that we'll all be completely except what i'm what i'm expecting to get when i read uh, thucydides is that they don't actually get that what they get is different guys who then have their own regimes and then they all work together to make sure that the population goes the way it does i assume it's it's just going to prove what the assertions are in the in the books i'm curious what that what that actually contains
1: Uh, yeah i mean the athenian democracy did not last all that long uh and and i'm sure even what it was like you just said it was probably actually you know a few guys really in charge and everyone sort of deluding themselves into thinking that you know oh we picked him right yeah. Uh, which is which is really kind of the core thesis of that book, and you know, I will say, like, this is 150 pages of oh. actual text. This is a short read. The thing is, like, it's really good stuff, and it's very readable. But it's just so like it's information dense in a readable way, if that makes any sense. Like, it's not it's not hard to read. It's just that mm. there's no there's no wasted sentences. Ah, a book review of it really doesn't make a whole lot of sense to like go deep on anything because he covers. A whole bunch of political theory thought over the course of like a hundred years. Hmm. Really what I was hoping to do out of rereading it was like make sure that like the seeds of how I wanted to present it to people are there or maybe get some ideas about what to say. But you know ultimately what I was just going to say in the book review is you know the reason this matters for ministry is you know first of all let's not kid ourselves about how power and politics actually works with any group of human beings. You can tell yourself that the you know, the church voters are going to put the final breaks on whatever, or they have the final say. But the real reality is, they're just going to do whatever the council recommends that they do. That's that's what they're going to do. Mm-hmm. And anybody who gets you know a knit over it is going to be you know one or two people maybe. And if they re- if they're really unhappy, they'll just leave, <laughs> right? right? And everyone else is just going to stay and be cool with it. So that means. It's really just kind of one very small organized group that makes the decisions, which is the core idea behind the whole thing.
0: That's Um, that's that's the elites. That's right. It's just it's small and organized. Yep. And the organization being important. Is there anything else that is required for you to be an elite, like a status? Well,
1: it. I mean, elite in the sense of something that matters in relation to the group, right? So you know, if we're talking about the entire country of America, for instance, in order to be an elite, you have to be Probably ridiculously wealthy, very talented, high amount of influence among other lower level elites, mm-hmm. right?
0: You uh, went to so Yale can... or Harvard and you, you were in the, or uh, Georgetown. Maybe.
1: Yeah. Right. I mean, it, just, it kind of depends upon the circumstances. Obviously Bill Gates didn't do any of that, but he earned it a different <laughs> route. So
0: yeah, he found his way in.
1: But if you're just talking about like the group of elites at your local congregation, you know, a lot of people just sort of followed to it by default because they've been there for a long time. And they may not even really be all that worthy of it (laughs) in some cases. They don't really know how to, like, I mean, it's not that they're not being, I'm not trying to tear them down. It's not that they're necessarily being unfaithful. They're they're just normal people who just want to live their life with the traditions and uh, and the teachings that they grew up with. And so they may or may not be equipped to handle the incredible social forces that are bearing down on us at this time.
0: Right, because whoever's, whoever's going to shift your elites can then shift your entire group by shifting them. Correct. And then everybody will just assume, well, they think it's okay, so it must be okay. Correct.
1: The people in charge of a church have an incredible amount of power, right? Like, if They don't have respect for God's word. You could, you know, any congregation overnight could become a false teaching congregation if the people in charge don't
0: care. And that's, that's one of the reasons why what happens at seminary is important, because then that's where you can train the pastoral elites in theory, then they have to be aware that they're not the only ones teaching the people. So they, they may be—you may have a perfectly good seminary, and the whole synod goes up in flames because the people aren't actually listening to any of the pastors. Now, it's, I don't think it ever works that extremely, but
1: in th- yeah, if you if you end up in a situation where if you end up in a situation where the, the people of the congregation are not listening to the pastor, it means that—I mean, I would say probably. In a lot of cases, it really has to do with they called in a new guy and he wasn't what they expected mm. one way or the other, right? Uh, just a sort of run-of-the-mill, mid-20th century style Lutheran church calls a dude and he wants to be you know, hyper-contemporary and that's not what they expected, right? And so then there's pushback. Or I'm sure it has happened once or twice in the Missouri <laughs> Synod that uh, you know some church that was going the contemporary route calls a guy and it turns out he's like, you know, a you know, a goddess deans fan, you know yeah.
0: <laughs>
1: and so and so yeah. then there's pushback, right? So I think that's gonna be like the normal thing. And so what you really have is you have within that sphere a natural elite in terms of a guy who is going to automatically have some level of respect that he knows he should be leading us in what God's word says, right? Versus the already entrenched elites of the congregational leadership, right? Like church presidents, elders, whoever, right? People who again probably just been there a long time is mm-hmm. usually the thing right every once in a while mm-hmm. you you may have a church in which the elite leaders of the church are people who say their major donor mm-hmm. if this person goes away we lose like half our church budget or something like that i mean or you know they're they're deeply entwined into the staffing of the church somehow families that you know are involved in like the teaching of the school or the you know whatever right so those kind of things
0: and then in the in the absence or in addition to those it'd be the people who are making the, those decisions say on the church council who are that small group which then goes right. to the large group and the large group doesn't have any will to resist them because in theory anybody who has a will to do anything is in the small group
1: most likely or if they're not in that small group if they're not in that small group and they have some kind of disagreement with the way that that organize, or you know that group of elites is doing things then they represent basically a potential, if you will, counter-elite. But if it's just the one of them, again, they're just going to leave, right? If they can gather others to themselves, then you may have a circulation of elites, perhaps, right? I mean, that, now we're getting to like really nasty church politics. And again, most of the time people end up just, well, let me just put it this way. Right-wing people tend to get fed up and leave. Left-wing people don't. And that's actually a bad tendency on the part of the le- on the right, mm-hmm. because like left wing people are, will leave if they if they can see that there's no path to victory for them, but they also know that they have the entire uh, forces of the American culture behind them, and so they are much more willing if they are have that sort of elite mentality. And again, we're just talking about elite within the sphere they're in, right? We're not talking about broader, right? Country level elites, right? Your but,
0: church, your local school board, what have you.
1: Yeah, but. They're much more willing to play this sort of long game because they know that uh, the allure of these things, right? The the entire pressure and weight of our social and cultural system is on their side. So they just all they have to do is bide their time, plant a few, you know, well placed accusations, catch somebody in a you know, supposedly racist or sexist or homophobic or whatever moment, right? And you
0: know, there you go. So then, the flaw with the right wing is the idea that over the long term they assume they're going to lose they assume they can't win and consequently they broadly speaking don't
1: um i think actually as the rogue elites i think it's different in that um what it comes down to is that more or less people with a right-wing disposition aren't actually all that interested in telling other people how to live their lives or telling the people that they must do x y or z right huh. and so and so when they run into a situation where they feel outnumbered or disagreed with or where they don't think that in the end they can win a victory they're much more likely to just say well if that's the way you guys want to be you do your thing but i'm going to go do mine
0: so that independent mindset and to a certain extent the, the understanding that they can just go on go their own way and build their own thing and that they don't want to force anyone to do anything leads them to abandon systems that are falling apart and try to build new ones from the ground up, which eventually, as at least as modern history has shown, eventually are gonna get taken over by left-wingers who then play the elite game until they win it. And so there's just this a constant cycle.
1: There's no more, the, the, I mean, the biggest problem with that strategy on the right is that of of the like, well, we're just gonna, I'm just gonna take my own ball and go home, you know, or go somewhere else, right? The biggest problem with that strategy, and I'm not saying, I'm not trying to be hypercritical of this, right? I'm not, because I, I understand the impulse. It's not always the wrong strategy. I'm not saying that. But a retreat should always be done in the face of war. A retreat should always be done with the goal of regrouping and pushing an offensive that later wins, right? And the problem, yeah, the problem with your typical. Sort of right-wing exit strategy is that there's never a counterattack, there's never a, there's never winning back any ground.
0: Hmm.
1: And so the problem now is that there are no more frontiers to escape to.
0: Yeah, uh, we went you know, as th- we th- went th- as far west as we could, and right. now.
1: So so like, let's just like let's just assume for for some silly reason, um, some silly silly totally unrealistic reason that uh, you know. <laughs> Um, uh, Lutheran Synod X that is wonderful and great and uh, you know has all the right doctrinal statements somehow begins to become corrupted, right? So then what are you going to do? Uh, well, I guess your church can leave that Lutheran Synod, right, and become um, part of Lutheran Synod Y, which is, you know, one quarter the size of Lutheran Synod X. Mm-hmm. You could do that, right? But then do you think they're really going to leave Lutheran Synod Y alone? <laughs> like it might take them another 50 years but they're going to come for them too right it's it's it just doesn't end uh there, there can be no power centers left that oppose the regime the cultural regime
0: no. because that's how they're fighting they're fighting through the culture they, they they're, they're, they're subverting right. mm-hmm. the defenses that we have if they were coming in, and engaging in theological debates with our pastors and saying ah now that we've defeated your pastor now you have to come to our synod like that that's the defense we have but we they're not fighting that fight. Yeah,
1: I mean some of that does take place, right? I mean you, you want to talk about sort of the, the initial wave of wars within churches over feminism in the 60s and 70s, right? And so the feminist scholars you know, scholars were certainly trying to make claims about the original about the uh, Greek words like they'd say, oh the word kephale which is, you know, Greek for head doesn't really mean head, it means source. And, you know, so they tried to take away its explanatory power by giving it a kind of oddball meaning that sometimes in classical Greek it can mean, but definitely does not mean that. No, sure,
0: so. I was I was talking with a buddy over the uh, last couple of days and we, we were looking for the word pillow and trying to find the word pillow in Greek. It is just straight up the place to lay one's head. And it uses kephalos. So, right, no, yeah. it's not the source. The, the when one lays his source is No, it's a, it, if, if you're using the word pillow, come now.
1: Yeah, right. They, I mean, they'll sometimes try to engage on that level, right? But obviously, there's no desired or need for them to do that in cases in which they think they can just, you know, strong arm things by way of social and cultural pressure. I mean, you know, why, why have an argument where you can just call your opponent a sexist?
0: Or wait and then get sufficient control over the IRS to rescind their tax exempt status.
1: Oh, yeah. Or well, right. That kind of thing. Right? Which, oh.
0: Which is a legitimate threat now. I mean, I, I, it's not something I think we've had to be concerned about, but I, I'm beginning to realize that that is something that the progressive church bodies, their mainline liberal denominations, actually have it in their best interests to try and wield that power against other denominations. So there's there's an actual enemy. I've been listening uh, to some of the recent Brief History of Power episodes, and part of the trajectory that Dr. Koontz is going on right now is that... Cities aren't bad. It's just that in cities you have more people, and so then there is more evil that's going to happen because you can have evil people coordinating. So if you're going to take a city to a certain extent, you actually have to be willing to wield the power. And this, I think, gets back to that thought you had about the right wing. If the right wing is going to stop retreating, they have to be willing to say, "You can't do this, and we're going to stop you."
1: Yes, Uh, and and actually, I'm going to go a step further and say. That one of the biggest problems with the right wing in America is that it is actually not all that right wing. Uh, it is more or less the right wing of what is still liberalism, liberalism in the mm-hmm. classical Hobbesian, Burkean, Lockean sense. Okay, the logic of liberalism or liberal democracies or you know whatever you want to say the, the, is it, always like it, it was always going to come to the place that we're at now right if if i want to if i want to expand my power and i realize that there's just like a percentage of the population that is never going to vote for me and that percentage of the population is pretty static and not, and and not small enough <laughs> that i don't have to worry about them yeah well what would i do in order to sort of massively shift my chances overnight I would expand the franchise <laughs> to more and more people who mm. I will promise all kinds of goodies to. And this is like the beginning of, of of how we got to where we're at. And you know, obviously, anybody listening to this will maybe be like, "Whoa, whoa, 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 whoa you're you're treading on dangerous down here." Yes, uh, I understand where you're coming from, and I'm not trying to make any incendiary comments here. I'm just saying that that is the natural th- uh, that is the way the power was always going to work the way the power was always going to work. Whether you agree with expanding the franchise in certain cases or not, uh, that was the way the power was always going to work. If you need people who are going to be completely loyal henchmen to your cause, uh, the best henchmen to get are people who have nothing else going for them in their entire life. The, 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 their only path to prestige, prestige, power, and status is if you give it to them. And so this is how we get completely unqualified freaks in charge of stuff like Sam Britton.
0: Who's he? You know,
1: who's the cross-dressing guy who's like oh. in charge of like nuclear waste for the biden administration yeah Lord, <laughs> right he's like agendered cross-dressing like whatever right and, and and also a thief it turns out right so completely unqualified completely uh whatever else people might think of you know the the gender stuff and the cross-dressing like just a horrible human being but wonderfully loyal why because without joe without joe biden he has nothing going for him. Uh, and of course, not Joe Biden specifically, but mm-hmm. the entire you know sort of regime and system. The right? left wing regime
0: and, has brought in those who are so outside of the sphere of decency that and yeah, and that competency the, even that that the only people who they could ever the only the because this is the only time in which they're actually accepted per se in society they are constantly slaves to those who gave them acceptance.
1: And by the way, this is not like um, a completely brand new thing. This is uh, uh, precisely what Vladimir Lenin did in right. Bolshevik Russia. The bent of liberalism, again, in its sort of broadest sense, not just, I don't just mean Democrats, right? Uh, the bent of liberalism was always going to go this way eventually because it it's the sort of pathways to increasing and entrenching your power always go along these lines so when i say that the right wing in america is not actually all that right wing it's that so much of the right wing is still sort of bought into the stories and political myths of liberalism and so if you when you talk about retaking cities at this point i don't think that's possible and you know who knows of course i'm you know um i i'm no nostradamus uh who was himself a fake so right. <laughs> um, uh uh I don't think it's possible to retake those without basically a system that is completely undemocratic and illiberal. And you know this is this is the prediction that has played out in history a few times of what happens to what happens to late failing democracies is they're eventually taken over by one or more Caesars. For instance Let's say that in in a sneaky way with good optics that doesn't like just totally offend people's democratic sensibilities. Right. Ron DeSantis in Florida Hmm. ends up more or less making the Democrat Party in Florida completely powerless. Right. Let's just say, you know, I don't know how he would do it. Right. But through one trick or another, he, he, he basically puts them in a permanent position of complete powerlessness in Florida. Right. That's what he should actually be trying to do. Right, like this again. This doesn't sound very American, but as one very famous conservative pundit used to say, the Constitution is not a death pact. Right, it's it's not a it's not a suicide pact. Uh, so okay, uh, things have broken down and failed. Uh, nobody's even paying attention to the Constitution anymore, anyway. So if if our enemies don't care about it, why should we? Uh, if we want to secure a a future that is not just a complete wasteland of immorality and and degeneracy, then you got to do what you got to do sometimes. And mm-hmm. what I said, of course, as a Christian pastor, uh, I, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not encouraging anyone to sin. Uh, I don't think anybody should commit should, should commit sins in this process. It's very likely that powerful people will commit sins in this process, <laughs> but I'm not, I'm not personally urging anyone to do that. But okay, so let's say let's say Ron DeSantis makes it so that the, the Democrats are basically more or less permanently powerless there, right? That is essentially a kind of localized caesarism and one can imagine that because florida is such a big state and has such an economic impact to the united states that there would be a kind of detente between florida and the rest of the regime in which the rest of the regime says look as long as you don't overstep your bounds to you know some new line we'll let you do your thing which is kind of what happened in a way right in the way that he handled the COVID stuff
0: right and that, that's, that's what I'm, I'm thinking of is in a lot of cases, this, the odd nature of the regime and the imperial structure that America is, it's not, it's not a nation. I mean, it, it's, it's much more similar to, in my mind, Assyria than anything else, because everybody's taken outside of their ancestral homes and promised this is, I love this. This is like the Rabshakeh. Just, just don't trust Hezekiah. We're gonna come in. We'll take you, and then we'll we'll take you away to a really nice land where you'll have all sorts of good food, and it'll be great, and you'll have, uh, you'll be fat and happy, and it'll be wonderful. Uh, so just, just you'll, you don't need this land anymore. We'll, we'll let somebody else take care of this garbage land for you, and and so you go and you you wander off in pursuit of wealth and riches, and then the entire empire is this hodgepodge of people who can't rebel because they can't organize. And the the only place that, the, the reason Assyria is destroyed is because groups that actually were able to organize and had some identity like the Medes, the Persians, and the Babylonians come in, and the Scythians I think as well. They come in and they just, they they are so sick and tired of having to deal with it that they tear the whole thing apart. It strikes me that that's what America is. It's, it's this distributed group where nobody can really quite organize because we're not co-located except where you are, you do have that potential. The instability and the lack of power that the, the the overall structure had was revealed in COVID because a lot of states couldn't even make mandates that people would uphold. And I think a lot of people discovered, wait, if I just walk into a store and don't wear a mask, what are they going to do?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. The fragility to this, the, the regime system is that, okay, the potential fragility to their system is the question of, will they be willing to use force eventually to get what they want? Hmm. And like there are some cases, I think, that we can see in which they have selectively used force against individuals in order to uh, sort of send a message, if you will. Uh, who's this guy that like got raided by the FBI or whatever for... Or like arrested for pro life protester at some place, and some other person started a uh, like a physical melee with him, and he kind of pushed back, and then they ended up arresting him. And he was recently acquitted, I think. I, I don't, I didn't follow the story that closely, obviously.
0: But um, um, see in Mark Hauk last October.
1: Yeah, I think that's I think that's correct. But in any case, uh, it doesn't really matter, right? Like, so that's that's an example of somebody trying we're going to ruin your life because you're an easy target, right? Or, or just like, you know, I mean like Nick Sandman, right? I mean, he's just like a teenager right. trying to keep his cool and keeping his cool, <laughs> right? Uh, and in, in the face of basically hostile people, right, who are trying to egg him on. And, you know, and, and he gets smeared for the rest of his life as, you know, quote unquote racist or whatever. So there are definitely like targeted examples of people being made an example of, some of them by force. If you want to count being arrested as being by force, I guess that doesn't apply to Nick Sandman per se, but,
0: but then in that, in his case, it was the full force of the propaganda regime, which is really how they want to operate.
1: So really what I'm getting to is what Machiavelli and um, Pareto uh, talk about as uh, Foxes versus lions. And, those are the terms that Machiavelli used. Uh, Pareto used like class one and class two residues or something like that. But <laughs> um, but the idea is that you know foxes want to do things through diplomacy and trickery, and they want to convince they want they want everyone else to think that they're right and be happy with. You know, you'll own nothing and be happy. It's not, it's not very eloquently done, <laughs> right? But uh, but that's a very Fox argument. Yeah, we're just going to take all your stuff, but don't worry, we'll provide. It's all going to be good. We'll pro- You'll have everything you need. You'll be totally happy, right? So th- that's a very Fox argument. Whereas lions are, are much more willing to use force, right? They have much more harder boundaries between right and wrong. And when I say right or wrong, I don't even necessarily mean the Bible's definition of that, right? Like Stalin was much much a lion, so they have much harder boundaries for what they consider right and wrong, and they're much really more willing to use force to punish those who they consider to be doing wrong. The weakness, the inflection point for the regime will be when the day of decision comes, and if they and if they don't use force, it becomes the tipping point that that eventually topples them over, and and then the, the question will become, will they do it or not? Hmm. And so you can see this in history, for instance, with Louis the Fourteenth. I believe, was a strong French king, willing to use force, there was no revolution under him. Uh. <laughs> it was under Louis XVI, who was basically not willing to do that. It wasn't under Henry VIII, despite how kind of hated the guy was that there was a revolution. It was under Charles the First, who also not willing to use force against mm. his opponents, right? And so when the day of decision comes, will the regime actually crack down on people? Stalin, very willing to use force. Mikhail Gorbachev, not as much. Now, the irony, of course, is that probably those more harsh tyrants who were willing to use force, I don't know if it's fair to call Louis Fourteenth like a tyrant, I, I don't know much about him, or necessarily even Henry VIII, I mean, you know, he was king and kind of an irrational, weird king, but mm. uh, was he really a tyrant? I honestly don't know. Uh, how many how many peasants, you know, in London cared about Henry VIII's life or what he was doing? I mean, he did start a whole new church body. He so maybe that to, did, that yeah. was pretty disruptive, I but, suppose. It but. was,
0: <laughs> but 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 I mean, but in I'm, any case, I'm thinking too in terms of the the Lutheran heritage in particular. There's the peasants' revolt that Luther actually has. You know, he he tells the princes, "Hey, you need to put this down. You don't allow them to go pillaging," That's right. That's right. and and they do they do go hard, and and Luther then. He's a little bit, I don't know, repentant perhaps about how how intensely he called the princess to say put this down. But to a certain extent, that is what you need because otherwise you're just going to end up with peasant revolt after peasant revolt after peasant revolt. I'm not I'm not justifying the princess, but
1: what I was going to say is that the the use of force can end up being the like the sort of first domino though that ends up bringing down a regime. So on the one hand, it will to a degree, sustain the regime's life. On the other hand, once you get to that point, you're already quite brittle. Hmm. You're because, already on your way out. Because somebody because, has
0: had the guts to stand up against you?
1: Because the way we are created as human beings and the way our our, our our consciences still have a sense of justice, it is marred and imperfect. But when the rulers are clearly doing what is unjust and everyone can see it, then The people no longer, they begin to become disillusioned with the political myth that says, this is why the ruler should rule. Whatever that myth is, right? I say, I'm using the term myth like very broadly or the way that these Italian elite theorists use it, or they actually, Mosca used the term political theory. So divine right of kings, okay, that, that political theory for why kings should rule lost its power and it lost its power because too many of them were self-serving, corrupt, living very hedonistic decadent lifestyles and they weren't caring for the people doesn't mean that what replaced it was necessarily better (laughs) but but it is you know it lost its ability to rally people you know god save the king that's still part of british culture to a degree but i don't know how, how many people in great britain on the left or the right say god save the king with about king charles the current reigning king charles with with like sentimentality and deep love in their heart right i mean i don't know
0: it's it's a it's a vanishing fraction that yeah. you know, and and what what percentage of them have imperial aspirations to restore the glory of the british empire
1: yeah it's it's it, that, that cross section of the two is all probably nearly identical right yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> the... much much the same by the way much the same as i don't know how you feel the pledge of allegiance i hate oh. it I'm I'm done saying the pledge of allegiance. I, I really, I'm just done with it because I I, I I don't believe the words anymore.
0: One nation under God, or the and republic for which it stands. Yeah, I'm, none of it. With liberty right? and like, justice what, for all. For all. Which,
1: yes. which which part of it is is true at all? Like it's all just a big lie at mm-hmm. this point. Hmm. Maybe you could say like there was there was some of that stuff still going on when I was young, but what what part of it is is even true? Other than the flag does represent the country but not a republic
0: <laughs> right
1: uh, or actually maybe even that part's not true because the real flag of the united states of america uh, is a rainbow
0: flag oh actually yeah the
1: the red the red white and blue one is just a proxy for that at this point
0: it's a so. it's a white supremacist symbol of rebellion against the government that's what the J- january 6th uh revolution uh, was well, yeah flying, right. wasn't it
1: well, yeah, except that now, uh, so one thing I noticed in my town this last election cycle, right, is that all the people who, uh, maybe I shouldn't say all, but the, the the people I saw who were most prominently displaying the American flag in the lead up to the election were the same people with the um, Democrat governor signs in the yard. So the, Ooh, the left very much considers it, it's their country now, belongs to them.
0: That's, a, that's an the, interesting the, inversion because it didn't use, four years ago, that was not the case.
1: Yeah, but it, it is now. <laughs> I, you know, China is an example here. The Chinese government is extremely patriotic, and they want everybody to be patriotic because, they can, because the CCP controls everything, right? There are no realistic nodes of resistance against them. And once the ruling Ameri- regime in America believes that is true about them too, then uh, patriotism is going to come back in a big way. Oh, yeah. The 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 left will be some of the, the most diehard flag wavers you will ever see.
0: But that isn't going to be f- raving the flag about the Constitution and the right to bear arms and no, no. Uh, the national security. It's it's going to be whatever their agenda is. Bad.
1: You know, yeah, pregnant flight suits and <sighs> uh, you know uh, transgender story hour at the library and you know all that stuff
0: because that's what America means.
1: That's that's what America is for them. Oh. Yeah.
0: Is there a version of America that doesn't have that though? <sighs> is there is there a righteous America, or or is the man who the guy who's going to stand up against that, you know, and and resist it, r- risk the the force, the 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 attack of the existing regime. The guy who who stands up against them has to, I would think, have some myth that the people believe that calls back to some other idea. I mean, in, in the French Revolution you had these Enlightenment ideas which were new, but they were entrenched. In at least a certain percentage of the the population and the the Russian Revolution, if you read Dostoevsky, has has undercurrents of people reading French literature who want to be like Napoleon and they want to take control of their future. So if you're going to stand against the existing regime, not only do you have to resist, reject the myth that they're projecting, but you also have to have your own myth, right, that, that validates your rebellion.
1: Yes and no. So historically speaking, there are different ways of doing this. One way of doing it is to have a completely new political theory. You're right. So let's just say, like, you know, one way or another, the divine right of kings becomes, you know, uh, has a resurgence. Okay. That's possible, for instance. Hmm. Or, you know, who knows? Anything. It could just be Caesar will protect us, right? (laughs) Whatever, right? Yes, a new political myth could basically become the rallying point for a for a circulation of elites in which the regime is toppled by them and you know everyone just sort of like readjusts and falls back in line onto under the new political theory of course not everyone will right but the vast majority of people will and when i say that the proof of that in our own lives is the obergefell decision where the day before the obergefell decision you know the idea of you know quote unquote gay marriage was in the minority, it was it was not what everyone believed or thought was pop- popular. Right, almost overnight, as soon as that decision comes down, now now we're up into the sixty percent in terms of approving it, because whoever's in power, whoever decides, whatever they say is good and right and legal, legal, legal is often conflated with just. So whoever's in power, you know, basically sets the morality for, which is why the Bible goes after rulers so much more often than it goes after normal commoners right it goes after religious rulers it goes after the king the bible does you know talk about fools for instance and that might just be any old commoner you know moron i suppose not just moron really i mean it just means unrighteous sinful you know hedonistic or whatever right or an idolater but far more often it's god calling out the leaders far more often Hmm. So yeah, uh, a new political theory could take over, and the vast majority of people would just adjust to that, and that that would become what they uh, are, are comfortable and fine with. It would be it becomes what they teach their children, and you know now we're off uh, into a whole new chapter of history. But another way that sometimes this is done is that a a rival group of elites will rather than come up with a new political theory, uh, continue the old political theory, only say. These corrupt, incompetent uh, fools can't do this right, but we will, and, and so it can go both ways. The the current political theory in America is more or less um, diversity, equity, inclusion. That's what it is. Mm-hmm. Okay, and that through our democratic processes, our democracy, we will ensure diversity, equity, inclusion. Right. That is the predominant political theory of the United States of America at this time. So I think it goes without saying that I'm not interested in a rival group of elite who thinks they can do that even better.
0: (laughs) No, (laughs) no. And and, uh, I love the, the variations of the acronym, you know, there's the people like to switch around. Oh, it's diversity, inclusion, and equity. It's, it's die. But I honestly think there's some, there's some power behind the existing one, which is dei. Mm. Uh, there's there's a divine They're god yeah yeah it's yep. it's a religion and yep. i have heard arguments that that is just what america is itself at a certain point like you said the word myth in, in many ways does tie in with this idea of a, a religious conviction as to why things should be the way they are or how they ought to be at the very least is in some ways a religious question mm-hmm. uh, absolutely and and in America we just took that to its logical conclusion and said, Okay, we're gonna deify a document and that's that's our king. And the this will rule, and we'll just follow what it says, and then you end up with the you know okay, we have a council of wizards who interpret it and they, they stand in their rooms with their long robes and give us wise counsel on to how as to how things how what the king's will is. It's like it's like Warhammer forty K. The the Emperor is asleep and now the the I don't even know the the, the names for it, but we have the the, the Sorcerers are there, and they're consulting with the head, and they're trying to figure out who. What is the divine will? So,
1: so the interesting thing is that, of course, it, it didn't start that way. the The Supreme Court arrogated that authority to itself, and I wish I could tell you off the top of my head the precise decision and exactly the year, but I, I think it was pretty quick in actually, uh, something like within thirty to fifty years of the founding of the country. The Supreme Court arrogated to itself the uh, final arbitration of what the constitution means, which it did not have originally.
0: So originally, if there was a question about, hey, does the constitution mean this or that, that was up to the legislature to decide?
1: The problem is that it wasn't clearly spelled out at all. Oh. The Supreme Court just grabbed that power for itself.
0: <laughs> oh.
1: I, I believe the founders basically considered it to be a situation in which the language is either clear enough or if it isn't clear enough, you would have to change the Constitution to make it clearer, which would require you know a constitutional amendment or something like that.
0: Wow. To talk okay. about the clarification of the responsibilities of the Supreme Court of the United States.
1: That's not the problem. The problem is there's a pretty good blog that was recently that kind of covered this stuff, like the sort of <laughs> decline from what America was written to be originally to where it has come now. The guy who writes it is an interesting guy. His name is Alexander Macris. He is the game designer for a for a, an offshoot of original D anD D. So we're talking about like when elves were a class and dwarves are a class and stuff like that. It's pretty. It's a fairly popular offshoot of it called um, Adventure Conquer King System. Uh, he was the founder of the Escapist. Oh wow! But he's no longer. He is no longer um, associated with it. And the Substack is something like the Tree of Woe, I think is what it's called. Yeah, Contemplations on the Tree of Woe. It's treeofwoe.substack.com. Really easy. And so he's got a series of blogs on the seven walls of Fortress America. And so he talks about that Supreme Court case in there, so you can read a little bit more about it there. The, The Supreme Court decided for itself that it gets to be the final arbiter of what the Constitution really means and says. And it wasn't originally that
0: way. So this is this is a, I'm, I'm looking through it, it's, it's excellent that he's comparing it to the the walls of Minas Tirith and giving you yeah. this idea of, he, they've, this, this this one sentence he's got in this first uh, article, all seven walls have been breached or worse, many of the gates were opened by naive fools, would-be tyrants, and disloyal magistrates, or left unmanned by a decadent and a distracted citizenry. Yep. Wow. Um,
1: yeah, he's, he's a pretty powerful writer, actually.
0: So he's he's making the argument for the uh, loss of the original myth that could then be restored almost in an Arthurian sense because that does strike me as America's Arthur. The founding fathers, the the constitution, this is the best we have to call us back to this idea of the kings of yore and the, the just rule and this is the way it should be where everybody lives in their own space and we all talk things out. So that old myth would be the thing that a rival, a rival group of elites could, in theory, grab onto and say, "Hey, we're gonna try that. We're the they real. Could. Her- we are the real ones who are holding to this."
1: Right, I, but I mean, that's been the line from you know conservative punditry in America for a long time. Is you know, let's just do what the Constitution says. Now, the problem is, I think that conservative punditry in America, you know, since the 19th I'm not sure that they really do want to go back to what the Constitution actually says. They have an idea of what the Constitution originally said. And it's so it's their idea of that that they want to go back to, right? But, you know, one of the... And again, uh, I'm just going to... I just say this in a, if I can put it this way, a value-free way, right? I'm not trying to say, oh, yeah, this was the best idea ever and we definitely should do this or whatever. But a constitutional right prior to the 1960s was freedom of association which means that if i put up a shop and i said only certain people can come into my shop that was a constitutional right it was essentially ignored and torn down by the 60s civil rights movements and you again might say to yourself well that's good i agree that's good and that's okay uh but i'm just saying that there are other ramifications to that aren't there like bake the cake bigot
0: right right at what point do you draw the line where you have freedom of association or you do not if you've implied that it is not an absolute right?
1: Part of what the real problem is here is that is a fundamentally mistaken notion that you can separate the church and the state. And that's actually impossible. It cannot be done. It can't be done. It cannot be done.